Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. Nehemiah chapter 2 today. Uh, We started a new series last week uh, called Rebuild. Uh, Pastor Brian uh, so brilliantly kicked us off in chapter 1. If you weren't here for it, uh, I may rehash a little bit of it as we go, but we all kind of got a gut punch a little bit, right? Uh, Pastor Brian, one of the things that he challenged us with uh, is that it's entirely possible for us as believers to give the enemy way too much credit in our failures. And I was like, man, that's so true. It's just so easy to say, man, the devil got me today, rather than taking, uh, taking responsibility for, for our own sometimes disobedience. And we see in chapter one, Nehemiah exemplify that for us. But today, chapter two, I kind of want to jump straight in because there's, there's just a lot here, okay? So I don't want to waste uh, much time. Uh, so you can go ahead in your Bibles. Stuff will be on the screens. But if you have a Bible, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter two for the most part of the, of the talk. I want to talk today about this word that we like to use in church called calling, right? Uh, if you've grown up in church or if you're a believer, you know, uh, you may have heard say, man, I just wish I knew what my calling was in life, right? What's God called me to do? What's the call of God on my life? And really, all we're, all we're saying when we talk about that, it's just a super spiritual word that says, what would God have me do with my life? That's really all we're saying is, what's God called me to do? We're just saying, what, what has God put in me to live out my life here on earth? And so what I hope to do is in a brief-ish manner, uh, Brian thinks that's funny because he uses brief-ish terminology, brief-ish manner, I hope to walk through this passage uh, we may make it through 10 verses. We may make it through six. Not really sure, uh, but we're going to make it. Uh, I'm going to walk through the passage, and then I hope to, at the end, lay out three practical things that I feel like God has given me through studying that can help us decipher what God's call on our life is. And so let's pray together. God, thank you. For your word, thank you for how it is living and breathing. God, I pray that I would not talk about anything other than what your word says today and that you would be the one speaking. God, in your word, we know never returns empty and void. And so I pray that you would accomplish what you want to today through this passage. 
And all the church said together, amen. I'm going to need some help now. I'm used to leading worship. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's energetic. It's full. People, people sing along, you know. So, Lynn, amen. come on now. <laughs> Chapter two today, but first... Uh, I don't want us to just jump right into the first verse of chapter one, chapter two, and skip over uh, this very important sentence at the end of chapter one. Very last sentence there. If you look above the first verse of chapter two, uh, we see the end of Nehemiah's prayer, and we see this one sentence: "I was the cupbearer to the king." I was the cupbearer to the king. And if we're not careful, you know, we just jump into chapter two and we skip right over that and we kind of miss what God may have for us in that sentence. But this is an important sentence for us to unpack and understand as we move forward in this book. See, a cupbearer in those days was an officer of pretty high rank in the king's court, right? Um, it, was, it was really the last line of defense, if you will, before you got to the king. So the cupbearer's job was to, to, was to be the one to offer the king food and drink. And one of his jobs was to make sure that the food and the drink was up to standard for the king. Anybody like, man, I think God's calling me to be a cupbearer, you know? It's like, I can be a cupbearer to the king. Yes, that is awesome. But another responsibility of the cupbearer was to ensure that the food and the drink, although it was up to standard for what the king would want, it was also not poison. And so this is double-edged sword for the cupbearer. Like they get to experience a lot of things. They get to have be in rooms that most people don't. They get to have a lot of responsibility, but also quite literally every sip and every bite could be their last, you know? It's just... It's this very strange job where it's both exciting and very cool, but also extremely dangerous. So something we see about the cupbearer is this person had to be extremely trustworthy and full of character. Because if the cupbearer was ever to get corrupted or infiltrated by the king's enemy, it was very easy to take out the king, right? So this cupbearer had to be the closest person, if you will, to the king, right? This, this position uh, was not like an entry-level position out of college, right? You didn't apply to be a cupbearer. You didn't go to trade school to learn how to be a cupbearer. Uh, the king handpicked you because of your character, and he handpicked you because he trusted you. So uh, right off the bat, we see that this position that Nehemiah is in is in a high position, we know that he's trustworthy, and we know he's a man of high character. Another thing about these cupbearers is they were in rooms talking about things that most people weren't, right? And so they spent so much time with the king every time they, they ate or drank, which was a lot. Uh, anytime they did that, they were spending time with the king. So a lot of times the king would run situations by them. They would ask their opinion on decisions they were making in the kingdom. So we see this is, a high, this is a highly esteemed position. This is a position to be sought after. However, I don't want us to miss this. It's a highly regarded position, but it was still a servanthood position by nature. 
In essence, the cupbearer's job was to serve the king. Although it was like high up on the want list, you know, I'd love to be a cupbearer to the king. Uh, you're well respected in the community. Everybody knows that if you can, if, if you can influence the cupbearer, you can influence the king, right? You have a lot of influence, but at its nature, it was still a servanthood position. And I think at times our culture would teach us that once we get to a certain position or once we get a certain promotion or once we get a certain job or we reach a certain level of respect or a certain level of power or a certain level of accolades, then there comes a point in time where we stop serving others and people start serving us. And we see here in the very first verse that we're going to talk about today that that's just simply not the currency of the kingdom. We see that all throughout Scripture, but specifically, I want to point our attention to Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. It'll be on the screen. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor. James and John, she's talking about. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> what is it you want? I could just hear him like, what? You know, he's, he's kneeling down. What is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, yeah. They're like, yeah, no doubt, we can. Jesus said to them, you will need to drink. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Yeah, they're like, you want to sit beside that? sit beside God in heaven. Uh, and then Jesus called them together and said, you know that the, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we, immediately we see that's not the currency of the kingdom, right? Jesus said, hey, I came to serve, not to be served. The, the most high and lifted up place in all of heaven and earth has humbled himself, come down to serve. And this just goes against everything that culture in that day, but especially today, tells us. See, life, God's calling us as believers to a life of service. And that's not just talking about service in the church, right? I mean, Lord knows we need service in the church. If you're in kids ministry at 1045, you're like, Lord knows we need servants in the church. We need workers in the church. Okay. But I'm not just that this, and, and I'm today not specifically just talking about servants in the church. The life that God is calling us to is yes, a serve your church life, but it's an also serve your coworkers life. And it's a serve your family life. And it's a serve your friends life. And it's a serve, hello, your enemies life. And this is a countercultural way to lead. And maybe from the top today, we need to examine and follow Nehemiah's lead 
as a highly respected officer of the courts of the most powerful man in the world. And by nature, he's walking through life as a servant. First and foremost, Lord, Brian, I went ahead and started talking about serving off the top and the air got sucked out of the room. It's like I said a bad word. I'm just kidding. Nobody's responding because you all serve, isn't that right? Continue on chapter two. Here we go. Verse one. We're going to go kind of fast because we've got a lot. Here we go. Verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. We learned last week that this was about four months from the time Han and I showed up with the news about the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, this, this month of Nisan, that's about, we, we talked about it last week, it's about four months, okay? We see that Nehemiah, what did he do? He, he took the wine and handed it to the king. So that's where we pick up. So first, we see Nehemiah, although devastated about the news of Jerusalem, although he's in private, clothing himself in sackcloth and ashes and praying and fasting and praying and fasting is still working. He's still working as unto the Lord in public. I think that's huge for us, right? When, when, when things are going wrong in life, we have this tendency to withdraw, and we're going to talk about this in a second. But Nehemiah, although he's praying and fasting and mourning in private, he's coming on with bells on to the king. He's like, king, here's your wine today. And this, hear me, this isn't being fake, right? We're not talking about somebody asking you how you're doing. You're like, I'm doing great. And things are exploding on the inside. This isn't being fake. This is just being faithful to where Nehemiah has him at the time. He's got a job to do. Right? It's, it's okay to mourn and fast in private, but when it comes to actually putting our boots on the ground and having to work and work out what God has asked us to do in the moment, we got to be faithful to that call. So here's these two tendencies. We, we know in chapter one that God's pricked Nehemiah's heart for the city of Jerusalem, right? Like he's, he's, he's mourning and fasting over the condition of the city. And when that happens, I think there are two tendencies for us. If we get a prick of God on our heart, there are two tendencies that we, that we tend to lean toward one or the other that I think are dangerous. And I want to, I want to help us avoid those today. Number one, we feel the prick of the Holy Spirit. He's impressing on us to do something and we immediately withdraw, Right? Uh, and we pray and fast, and then we pray and fast, and then we change up the order and we fast and pray, and then we go to our third Bible study for the week, and then we call our accountability partner again, and then we call Brian and the elders and have them come lay hands on us so we don't make the wrong decision, and then we call our friends to fast and pray because I'm still not sure God, what you're actually calling me to do. And what happens is we get in this overly spiritual cycle of trying to make the right decision. What happens is we never act in obedience to what God has called us to do. We just spin our wheels in this spiritual muck of praying and fasting. And don't hear me, there's nothing wrong with those things. Yes, do those things. But the danger is, God, I need extra clarity. 
when sometimes he just needs to take a step. And number two, that's the first danger. The other danger is we immediately act because we're so fired up that we finally heard from God and we're walking through life. It's like the Lord has spoken and then we burn everything around us to the ground in the name of God told me to do this and then we end up not bringing anybody along with us, including the Holy Spirit. Those are the two dangers. And I, I, wa I wanna try to help us find and navigate a middle ground today of how to walk and how, how to live in the calling that God may have for us today. Nehemiah knows, hear this, Nehemiah knows what God has impressed on his heart to do, but he's also being faithful to where God has placed him in the here and, in a, here and now. See, he's in this season of waiting, right? Like he's working and he, in his prayer closet, he's praying and fasting and then he goes to the king and he's working. He's, just, he's just in this turmoil, right? Two things quickly that I think we can learn in those times. Like you may be in a season of waiting, like you're trying to figure out what's next in your job, uh, in your life, what degree to get, what boyfriend, what girlfriend to have, you name it. You may be in a season of what's next. Two things that those seasons teach us. One, it teaches us to pray. We see that in chapter one. Brian did an amazing job last week of walking us through Nehemiah's prayer. Go back and listen to it, but buckle up. Whew. Buckle up, it's a, it's a gut punch. And number, it teaches us to pray. Number two, it teaches us to plan. I said a bad word, bad word. And hear, hear me, hear me. I am the worst planner. Like, the worst. Ask anybody I work with. I am the worst. Ask anybody on this team. Like, comfort zone for me, like, we get up here on a Sunday morning, we're leading worship, and I don't have a plan. Like, I'm just going. That's comfort zone for me. And I understand that makes me a bad leader, all right? I'm holding my hand up. I understand that makes me a bad leader. I'm impossible to follow, okay? I'm, I'm working on it. As, uh, in, in the words of Greg Worley, hope it's not a strategy, son. Got it. But I just feel so comfortable without a strategy, you know? I, I gotta get better. I gotta get better. It teaches us, these seasons teach us to pray and they teach us to plan. Let's keep going. I'm moving right along. Uh, picking up in verse one. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Translation here for us, fix your face, right? The king's like, Nehemiah, fix your face. Like you're in the presence of greatness, right? Like you're in the presence of the king. I know you're not sick. Why do you look like that? You know, you know those people who's like, hey man, what's, what's wrong with you? They're like, nothing. You're like, inform your face. That's what's happening with Nehemiah and the king, right? He's like, it's like, hang on a second. You're, this isn't allowed in the king's courts. Like, I'm, you're in the presence of greatness. You need to come in with, with bells on. You know, I don't care what's going on the outside. You better have your act together in here. Anybody thankful that we don't have to have our act together in the king's courts? Come on, I don't have time to preach on it. But, hey, I'm thankful. Nobody else is. I don't have to have my act together in the king's courts. We're not talking about our Xerxes anymore. Never mind, we'll move on. Translation, fix your face, right? This is, uh, anybody seen um, 
The Emperor's New Groove? Yeah. I got kids, so I've seen it a lot. You know, the opening, the opening scene in uh, Emperor Cusco, he's like dancing. It's like, you know, they're dancing, dancing, dancing. And the beggar bumps into him, and he's like, you threw off my groove, dude. And he throws him out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This is what's happening, right? It's what's happening in Nehemiah, except for Nehemiah legitimately, and all joking aside, he could have been killed for this. Like this was a severe transgression against the king. But it goes to show the trust that Nehemiah had built over time with the king. Like he, he felt at least somewhat comfortable with coming into the king's chamber, not having his act together. Next thing out of his mouth, I was very much afraid. Yeah, because he knew that the king could have him killed for this, one, and he knew that the king was about to hear something come out of his mouth that, that Nehemiah knew that he was adamantly against, right? Nehemiah was about to ask him something, and he knew the king could respond really badly to both him being sad in his presence and to what he's about to ask him. So Nehemiah is rightfully afraid. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. This is his truce, right? This is like his, his like, just so we're on, we're on the same page, king. Like Nothing's changed with us. Like, may you live forever. Let's be clear. I'm not trying to poison you. I'm not conspiring against you. I'm just a little sad. I want you to live forever, right? He's on the same team. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? For the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah is like throwing up a Lord, help me now. You know, we see he's like prayed and fasted in the quiet, in the dark places. And now he's in the presence of the king. And the king asks him, like, what do you want? And before Nehemiah answers, he throws up this like last ditch, like quick shot prayer, if you will. And if your parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. It's like your kid does something, <laughs> rubs you the wrong way and just like stares at you. And before you like rear back, you're like, Lord, help me not kill him. That they definitely deserve a spanking, but please don't let me kill them. You know, it's, it's like one of those. One of those quick shot prayers. Or if you're like me and you've got like a wedding, you know, tomorrow. I don't, but you've got a wedding tomorrow and you've decided that you'll pull your suit out of the closet from last year, uh, today, and you're pulling up your pants, you know, and you're like, Lord, please let this button. Like, if this doesn't button, I don't have another option. It's short. It's like, please, will you just let this, let these fans, but I mean, anybody that happened there, I mean, just me, that happens to me all the time. Lord, please help me. This is what he's throwing up, or in his case, it, I mean, in all seriousness, he's like, he, he's like, God, I'm about to ask the most powerful man in the whole universe something that I know he's adamantly against. So I'm really going to need your help. You know, it's, it's like a quick shot prayer. And then he answers. We know that he's adamantly against this because if you look back 
a book in the, the book of Ezra, we see that King Artaxerxes was the one who halted the rebuilding of the walls that Nehemiah's broken over in the first place. Like he ordered the stoppage of it because he doesn't want other cities under his rule and reign to be refortified. Like he, he wants an, if, if there's ever an uprising, like he doesn't want any resistance. Like why would the most powerful man in the world want other civilizations to be built up and come against him? Like he's, he's adamantly against that in his nature and Nehemiah knows that. But we see Nehemiah's immediate response to pray before responding to the king, just quick shot prayer. This tells us that he knows that it's possible to move men by prayer alone. He's about to ask the king, all of it's leading up to this. Here's my ask. God, I need, I need, I need you to move his heart. That's his last, last ditch attempt. This is also another example of why we need both the deep, dark room prayers where we're in the weeds with God and we need the quick shot, quick fire prayers throughout the day. I think we gotta have both for a growing relationship with God. First Thessalonians says uh, in, ver in chapter five, excuse me, uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This pray without ceasing in the Greek just means to do something repeatedly. And so in other words, it's like your soul is in a constant revolving conversation with its maker until you get back home and you're alone and then you can commune some more and then you're out in public and something happens, you're like, Lord, I, I need you. It's a constant making yourself aware of your need for God. These are crucial prayers for us, I think. Let's keep reading. Pick up, picking up in verse five, we're gonna go all the way to nine. Here we go. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, I like that. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, he's leveraging his relationship. Let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, I like that. Nehemiah is smart. He's like, I gotta find a time when the, king, when the queen's with him. You know, any guys in the room act different when their queen's around? You're a lot softer. Nehemiah knows he's not, he's not a dummy. He's like, let me wait till the queen's beside him. It'll be less harsh. He's less likely to kill me if the queen is sitting there. Here we go. Where are we? Verse six. Here we go. With the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. 
So translation here, there's a lot going on. Translation, Nehemiah has just asked the reigning king of Persia, the most powerful man in the known universe, to not only allow him to go refortify a city that has already been conquered, uh, but he asked him to actually provide all of the funding, all the resources, all the tools, and the manpower to do so. And the king says, sure, how long are you going to be gone? This is crazy. Sure, how long are you going to be gone? It's no problem. And so Nehemiah's like, well, uh, can't, he starts to, this is the plan, right? He's got this plan in place. Uh, Sure, um, can I have a letter to the keeper of the forest so so that I can ask him for wood to build the wall that you don't want built? Yeah, sure, no problem. Okay, um, how about a letter to all the governors of the regions I'll be passing through so they don't kill me? Like, tri- yeah, no problem. Okay, uh, how, do I, how do I get authority when I get, I'm gonna name you governor, it's, it's totally fine. You'll be governor while you're there. Okay, um, how long are you gonna be gone, he asked him. There's no hesitation in the king This is a picture-perfect example of the favor of God on somebody's life when God's called them to do something. This doesn't make any sense. The king has no reason. I mean, I'm talking zero reason to let him go do this. He's losing his most trusted advocate, his last line of defense of, of keeping him alive, if you will. And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. What do you need? You need letters of safe passage? You need money? You need guards as you go? Sure. What I have is yours. He was prepared to present the king with the plan after he said yes. That's crucial for us. We can spend all of our time and trying to decipher what God has for us in this, in this life. We can spend our time praying and praying and praying, but if we never formulate a plan for how we think that it's going to play out. We, we can always be flexible. We can always let God do what he's going to do. But he had a plan to present to the king, and the king said yes. And so he was able to continue on, and God's hand was on him. So why was the hand of God on Nehemiah? Why was the hand of God on Nehemiah? This is, if you're going to get something today, maybe this is it. The hand of God was on Nehemiah because he sought the Lord He waited on him, and he was willing to do the work. That third one. He waited on the Lord. He sought the Lord, and he was willing to do the work. Because by no means at this point was the work done, right? Uh, We know that uh, through through studying the word, that Jerusalem was 900 miles away. Right, so Nehemiah has been praying and fasting for four months. He's probably, he's he's probably exhausted. Uh, he's finally got permission from the king to go do what he wants to do, and he's he's got four months of traveling on a donkey, through region, through region, through region, jumping through all these hoops just to get to the city. And then he takes a rest, and he's got to examine the city. He's got to rally the troops. We'll see all this later in the book. And we know that all in all, it took 12 years to finish building the wall. So 13 years roundabout total process from the prick of God on his heart to accomplishing what he felt the Lord was leading him to do. 
God trusted that Nehemiah was willing to put in the work. Does he trust us to put in the work? When he calls us to do something, can he, can he say, yeah, I, I know you're seeking me and I know you're waiting on me, but I'm, I'm just waiting on you to be willing to put in the work. I love how Nehemiah prays. We, we see that when Nehemiah prayed, he may have done this like in his, in his back room praying or whatever, but scripture never reveals this to us. I love that he didn't pray that the walls would be miraculously rebuilt because God certainly could have done that. But Nehemiah prayed for favor with man and the opportunity to go build it himself. Don't hear me say we don't need to pray for the miraculous. We do. But what would happen if our prayers turned from asking God to do the miraculous to, God, would you give me the opportunity to do this? Would you open the door for me to do this? Instead of, hello, instead of praying for our lost loved one to come to know Jesus, if, which we do need to do, but we've pray, if we prayed to God, God, would you open the door and soften their heart to give me the opportunity to share with them? God, I'm so guilty of that. I just want to see miracles. I just want to see God do the miraculous. And a lot of times he's like, yeah, I'm going to do the miraculous, but you got to do the work. And we see that in Nehemiah. The hand of God was on Nehemiah because he sought the Lord. He waited on him and he was willing to do the work. Now, here are three things. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're start wrapping up here. Here are three things that I think God has revealed to me through studying that can help us discern what God's called us to do. Maybe if he's like changing trajectory, like what what is God asking me to do in this life? Three things. Now, these are not gospel. These are not all encompassing, right? They're flawed, but I think they're practical and they can help us. Number one, was this desire birthed out of spending time with God? Was this desire that I have birthed out of spending time with, with God? So I have somewhat of a background in student ministry. I've never actually had the title of being in student ministry, but I guess when you're young in ministry, you're by default in student ministry. And so I've just always been kind of around students. And this doesn't just go for students. This goes for adults too. But I've been asked more times than I can count how did you know God called you into ministry? Or how did you know worship ministry was what you're going to do, you know, for the rest of your life, for a living? Or how do I know? You name it, it's been asked. How do, how do I know that's what God's called me to do? And short answer is, I didn't. And all of us who grew up Baptists are like, <gasps> you didn't go up front and announce your calling to ministry? No, I, I didn't. That never happened to me. Maybe it did for you. That didn't happen for me. I didn't know. But what happened is, uh, during some summers in college, while I was home from school, I fell in love with Jesus in some basements with some guys that are in this church, right, that you probably all know. And we studied scripture together and we worshiped together, 
And we didn't have a worship leader or a pastor. We just kind of dove right into scripture and worshiped as a result from it. I led worship, kind of. You think I'm bad now? You should have heard it then. I mean, it was bad. Like somebody starts singing, I got an acoustic, I can play four chords. And I'm like, that's not the right key. And I'm trying to find it. And I end up finding it. And we would just worship as a result of what God was teaching us through scripture. But in those moments, my heart was pricked to lead people to doing what God made them to do, to worship. I didn't have some goal to be on stage. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do the whole thing. I still don't. I'd rather not be up here currently. Uh, I just said yes to what God impressed on my heart to do. And that led me here. I don't consider myself to have some lofty call of ministry. I just decided in those summers that as best as I could, Lord help me, I'm just gonna keep saying yes to the opportunities that are put in front of me because of what you pricked on my heart in spending time with him. That's number one. Did this desire come birthed out of spending time with God? Number two, is it driven by your love and compassion for people? This is, after all, God's heart, isn't it? For his people, he longs to be in communion with his people. He, break our hearts for what breaks yours, Lord. If, if this desire is driven by a compassion for the state of the people around us, chances are it's from God. We see it in chapter one of Nehemiah, verse four. When I heard these things, when I heard about the condition of the city, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah didn't know what God was about to call him to do until his heart broke for the condition of the people. He didn't know. He wasn't born and he wasn't like, oh, I just know God's called me to build the walls of Jerusalem one day. I just know it. No, he didn't know. He was just working and God broke his heart for the condition of the people. And his availability dictated what God was asking him to do. So you may be struggling today, taking the next step in your life, whatever that may be. Maybe it's a job, school choice, boyfriend, girlfriend, you name it. I would ask this question. Have you spent time with the Lord about it and not asked him about that? I'm so guilty of this. I love preparation, right? Like I love preparing for Sunday, but sometimes my love for preparation and filling up to pour out on Sunday makes me neglect my devotion. It's different. Don't just come to God and ask him uh, to, to, make, to make your desires come true. Come to him and ask him to align your heart with his. Start with devotion. Have you spent time with him asking him to, to transform you by the renewing of your mind? Romans 12.1. Not just, God, I want to do this. Will you help me do it? 
Was the desire birthed out of spending time with God? Is it driven by your love and compassion for people? And number three, this is it. Does it end with God getting the glory? Because if, listen, give me some grace here. If you can do it without God, I would encourage you to check your motives. Like if, it, if it's just something you want to do, there's nothing bad with aspiring to do things. There's nothing bad about striving to, to do great things in life. But in, in terms of trying to figure out what God has put you on this earth to do, if you can do it without God, I would encourage us all to check our motives because God's plan always ends with us being fully satisfied and getting absolutely none of the glory. Like when, if this were to happen, I would be so satisfied. It's like my life is complete and I wouldn't care if anyone ever knew that it was my idea, I was a part of it or not. Does God... Does it end with God getting the glory? I think these three things can help us filter. Something comes up in life, man, like, is this, is this what God's calling me to do with my life? Was it birthed out of spending time with him? Is it driven by your love and compassion for people? And does it end with God getting the glory? Building the wall, only God could do that. Nehemiah could do it by himself. It's just too big. Does it end with God getting the glory? I'll close with this. Maybe there's some people in the room today. I think there's maybe three groups of people. This kind of worldview, this kind of decision-making makes absolutely no sense to you. And I would maybe challenge us to, if, if this doesn't make any sense to you, like why would you live that way? Like why wouldn't you just do what you want to do do what makes you happy. I would maybe challenge us if we actually know who Jesus is in the first place. And maybe you could start today by asking the God of the universe who you have access to right now to transform your mind. This happens through salvation, through saving faith in Jesus. And, and when he saves you, he begins this process of transforming you by the renewing of your mind, and your mind starts to think differently. We can't imagine making these kind of decisions anymore without filtering through what God would have us do. And that offer for salvation is on the table for everyone today because of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It is absolute truth. We've been singing about it all day, and it's an option on the table for you today. That's the first person in the room. Maybe the second person in the room is you're in the season, for lack of a better word, of cup bearing, right? You know God's impressed something on your heart and you know what he's leading you to do in life, but you're in this season of you're just serving the king and you're, you're, you're going home wondering if your dreams are ever gonna happen and you're just going back and serving the king and you're going home and praying. You're, can, I just, can I just encourage you with something? Don't strive so hard for your next step in life that you miss what God is giving you time to do in this season. You may be needing time to learn how to pray. You may be needing time to learn how to plan. You may be needing to mature in a way that God can trust you with the work that needs to be done. But don't miss what he's trying to teach you in the season. 
And lastly, maybe there's people who are in the middle of what God's called them to do. They're in the middle of the work. They are building the wall as we speak. I would say to you, press on. It took Nehemiah 13 years start to finish from, from the prick of God on his heart to the finishing of the wall. And if he's, if make no mistake, if God has birthed this desire, this calling in your heart through spending time with him, if it's driven by your love and compassion for other people, and if it ends, sole goal is for God to get the glory and me to get none of it, he will be faithful to see it through to the end. And so keep your hand to the plow. For he has called you, is faithful to do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash next steps and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. And also, a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org and don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you, we're praying for you, and we'll see you next time.